I'm Ben Davis, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News, where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Well, the last weeks of the year are the time when media everywhere bravely answers the call to look back and round up some of their favorite stories. Personally, the work we've done on The Art Angle has been one of the things I am proudest of this year, and the short list of memorable episodes for me would include stories from Point's all over the art world map. I'm proud of my interview with critic and art theorist Hal Foster, which I found really illuminating. There was Bill Van Metier's oral history about art in the 2000s, which I think was a real contribution to the art history of the recent past. There was even an episode of The Art Angle that was a former museum guard's love letter to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I really recommend that you go back to check it out if you missed it. But maybe my very favorite episode of the year was my conversation with my colleague Kate Brown in Berlin about her essay on a trend she detected in recent painting. She called it hypersentimentalism. Kate was picking up on a vibe, the fact that a lot of recent artwork focuses on small groups of friends. This is art that plays on micro-celebrity and that works to stylized artist circles in a particularly knowing way that Kate was trying to figure out. Kate's essay on the subject really snapped a lot of different things that had been happening around me into focus when I read it, and our conversation added even more layers to the discussion for me. So here it is, my conversation with Artnet News senior editor Kate Brown from June about hyper-sentimentalism in recent art. The hypersentimental painters that I kind of name have adopted this way of working where the top soil of the painting is like a sentimental portrait, but there's this second layer of meaning that is speaking about their scene to their scene. I'm Ben Davis, and this is The Art Angle, the podcast where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest stories down to earth. If you follow the mainstream art world, you will know that for the last decade, one of the big stories has been a boom in new kinds of figurative painting. A visit to the recent art fairs in New York showed me that this boom is not slowing down. But nothing stays unchanged forever, and trend watchers have been scanning the landscape to see what new developments might emerge. Well, my colleague Kate Brown has an essay out for Artnet where she brings together a bunch of recent examples to speculate about a possible new wrinkle in the story of contemporary art. What's cool in art right now? It might be that what's cool is painting your cool friends. The word Kate uses to describe what she's seeing is hyper-sentimentalism. This is art that trades in knowingly stylized or lightly romanticized images of friends and colleagues, with a heightened attention to intimate connections and a veiled but also self-conscious attention to the art scene itself as subject matter. I thought that this is a cool argument itself to play around with and to try and unpack, so I wanted to talk to Kate to hear about where she sees hyper-sentimentalism in play, and even more importantly to me, what other bigger developments in culture might be causing the drift in this particular direction. So, Kate Brown, it is 7.30 a.m. in the morning where I am recording in Seattle, visiting my parents. What time is it where you're at? It's 5 p.m. on a Friday, so we'll see how lucid I feel, but I'm excited. It's good to be back on the podcast with you. So, Kate, when you first told me about your idea for this essay, I have to say that I was a little jealous. 
you're in Berlin and I'm in New York. But this concept that you came up with really did put a name on something that I was seeing or feeling and helped me get perspective on something that was happening. So before we get into it, let's just define what you mean by the term hypersentimentalism. Yeah, it's definitely also quite funny because I think most of the artists that I refer to in my piece are based in New York. <laughs> um, hypersentimentalism is something that sort of occurred to me as a sensibility more than in a formal aesthetic. When I started to realize that there was a lot of sentimental figuration happening, and by that I mean mm -hmm. like people painting their scenes, people painting people that they know, this kind of intimacy and emotional sensibility being like foregrounded in art a lot. But what I also started to notice was that there was a second kind of factor happening, and that's maybe like where the hyper comes in. Obviously, it denotes a certain intensity, but I was really thinking about like hyperlinks, these visual mm. cues that you click on and they kind of bring you to another place. So the hypersentimental painters that I kind of name have adopted this way of working where the top sole of the painting is like a sentimental portrait, but there's this second layer of meaning that is speaking about their scene to their scene. So it's very directed. You describe it in the essay as a smartly positioned style of figurative painting that champions micro-community as content, but also as sensibility. And I thought that was really well put and give it intellectual way of understanding this scene painting, paintings of the scene. Yeah, and you know, sentimental art has had a bad rap throughout history. It's been seen as something that is like anti-intellectual, non-political. It's soft around the edges in all sorts of ways. And I think that it makes a lot of sense that people who are working in the avant-garde have kind of like taken it up now as like a viable language to speak with. Was there a particular moment that this all snapped together for you? You know, obviously figuration has been very present as a prominent trend for the past couple of years. But there was this show that I saw in the fall in Berlin at Galerie Neu of, you know, a New York-based artist, Louis Fertino. And his paintings are these really intimate self-portraits and portraits of lovers or friends, maybe. And they're these very sentimental depictions. And they're often in his studio. There's a sleeping dog. These sort of intimate queer moments that are very quotidian. They're really beautiful. And they have this kind of modernist language and this modernist way of doting over a muse. And he's a super popular artist right now. Two of his paintings bookended the Christie's sale in May, and they went way over their estimate. I mean, speaking of quantitative aesthetics, whatever kind of value of excellence that is, but he is a great painter. So I started to notice this, but what I noticed more so was that there was a trend too where people are sharing these pictures online. So it's also just about the way that this art circulates, you know, right. that protagonists are occurring in paintings that specific people know. So there's like a codification in that. People are painting their scene and the images are kind of being traded as part of that scene and produced as maybe a way of defining that scene. Yeah, exactly. And it's not not conceptual, but it is... Um... Rooted in relationships. Exactly. I think it would help maybe to just give people some images to work with. You bring together some examples from really around the earth in your piece of different artists who work in this mode. So let's talk about the first one you bring up, Chloe Wise, who's a painter who in some ways came up through Instagram. 
I feel like before I even get into it, it's important to also say that I'm not trying to like box any artists in. As I said earlier, it's not really like a formal style necessarily as much as a sensibility that people can touch on. Like a lot of these artists are talking about vastly different subject matter at the same time. Art always has different aspects to it. I don't want to oversimplify anyone's practice. But yeah, like Chloe Wise is, you know, maybe the penultimate example from the millennial generation of artists who have risen into stardom recently. Maybe like to just give one concrete example. She has this painting of this New York-based model, Richie Shazam. You can see half of her profile in the painting. If you know who Richie Shazam is, her face is instantly recognizable. But if you don't, you're totally inoculated. You don't get it. And so this is the sort of way in which a lot of these painters are working. So it's like a little video game Easter egg, like tucked into the painting. Another example that I brought up, I think it was actually the introduction to the piece, was this painting by Elizabeth Payton. Obviously, she's sort of the grand dame. A little bit more senior artist than some of the other figures you're talking about who are really part of the rising scene. Exactly. And I think, as I said, it's not like this is super neatly categorized, nor should it be, but she's like maybe one of the artists who came to prominence in the last 20 years for really painting celebrities and people in her communities who also happen to be conveniently celebrities. And she had this painting at Art Basel Hong Kong of Lucas Werner, the heir apparent to the David Werner empire, the mega gallery. And this is also kind of a great example because it's a very sentimental painting. He's sitting there, it's washed in like Peyton hues, and he's looking off to the side pensively. But the subtext, the kind of hidden hyperlink, if you will, is that she just gained representation with David Zwerner. Lucas is sort of a patron now and working with her, they're professional collaborators. So of course, this was picked up by people in the art world as like, a little exciting factor that people started retweeting and talking about, like we've talked about in Artnet News, it became a news story. So that's the double reward. Yes, I think that's something I want to get into in a little bit when we talk maybe about some of the larger implications of hypersentimentalism as a trend. But that effect where it's a perfectly nice painting in the artist's characteristic style, but that it also contains a little bit of content that circulates as news, like it's meant to function as a message about where people stand in the social hierarchy, or it's meant to serve that purpose, is kind of what you're getting at. This double messaging that functions as art and also functions on another level as gossip in a way. Yeah, exactly. And it's not that it's a negative aspect as well, you know, but it's got a certain strategy to it where you do sort of say who's a member of your group or who you have access to. Like you and I were talking offline earlier this week about Constance Tenvik, which was this artist who you saw show up at 56 Henry. And this is another great example. They have a painting called Kenny on the Day when I exchanged a mind map for plastic gloves, printed out official documents and a cab to the airport. Right, And it's right. a picture of Kenny, who anyone in the art world knows is Kenny Schachter because the Adidas pants depicted in the painting and so on. But it is exactly this kind of intelligent doublespeak where that painting might not mean much to a lot of people. It might just be a nice painting of a guy, but it denotes a certain other thing to people who know who Kenny is. And it says something about that artist as well. Wait, let's just flip through a couple other examples real quick, just to make sure people have got it. You talk about Amalia Ullman. Yeah. And, you know, and to circle back to like, Chloe Wise, because I think it folds into what I'll say in a sec about this recent Amalia Ullman show, is something I mentioned about like how images circulate. And I think that's what distinguishes sentimental painting from hyper-sentimental painting, is there's an awareness of virality that can kind of be touched off in these works. Like that Richie Shazam painting, 
was probably tagged and reposted and circulated on the internet and had a sort of second life there, if you will. Most of us are experiencing art online anyway, so this is a very intelligent way to disseminate your work. And yeah, there was this recent Amalia Ullman show that I think was in the late winter in New York. Did you go to the show? No. Okay. I heard tell, heard the rumors. Well, we all heard about it, right? And we saw pictures of it because it was over a two dozen or maybe a dozen pictures of very specific people in New York drawn as cartoons. And it was a reference to this restaurant, Sardi's, which has these similar kind of cartoon figures all over the walls of, you know, iconic people that were there. So there is these amazing drawings of Dean Kissick, the art critic. Jordan Wolfson is depicted. The author, Stephanie LaCava, is on there. And Natasha Stegg, I believe, is also on there. People who are in the scene, people who, if they showed up at your party, you would say the next day to your partner, do you know who was at the party last night when you're recounting the night? Exactly. And I think it's a really great example because the viewer comes into play because if you can look at those installation views and you don't need to look at the work list to know who you're seeing, that is a level of access and membership to that scene. Oh, I know who that is. Uh, maybe you know them personally, maybe you don't. But even if you've listened to their podcast or something, whatever, there's these like different levels of Patreon like access to this scene that is being represented. It was a very cool show. This is not necessarily like a criticism of it. I'm just trying to sort of name the thing that I feel like is happening there. Let's talk about a third example. The painter named Tobias Spichtig and the show that you mentioned that's actually called Dear Friends. And the works have been described as emotional headshots. Yeah, this was at a gallery called O-Town House in Los Angeles. And Tobias is a Swiss painter who's based in Berlin, who I also know. He's also an acquaintance. And he makes some figurative paintings. He also makes abstract paintings and he makes sculptures. He's got a varied art practice, also like Amalia Ullmann, you know. There may be different painters in the sense that they're not like figurative painters part and parcel. But he had this show called Dear Friends, and it was really about foregrounding the feelings of his scene and the people that he knows. The subject matter was the sentimental sensibility of the people that he knows and collaborates with and has worked with in different capacities. And the paintings themselves have a very kind of like modernist kind of appeal to them as well. Like they're very expressive. There is a painting of Max Pitagoff and Kalle Henkel, who are these Berlin-based artists. There's artists like Clara Linden. And they're kind of gazing out against these black backgrounds that are almost like the aspect ratio of like iPhones. And they're not even really representationally accurate of the people he depicts. He's sort of going for their essence or whatever. Which in itself is a very knowing thing. You know, it's like I have access to the essence of these sitters. Yeah, which is a beautiful thing, too. You know, it's like how nice to know people well enough to be able to kind of paint their essential kind of character. It is truly quite cool on some level, but it also does this other thing where you get to enjoy it on another level. If you recognize those people and you also know those people, it has this other function for viewers. So this really did name something that was happening for me. You know, sometimes when you name a phenomenon it appears to you more readily. But I th think that some people listening might be thinking to themselves, what's really new here? And of course, there's nothing new under the sun. Artists have always <laughs> painted their friends and peers. It's kind of the romance of being an artist that the field inherits. It's part of its bohemian underpinnings and packaging. Is there anything in particular that you can nail down as making this particular form of hyper-sentimentalism feel contemporary? It's a great question. And of course, 
figurative painting has always had muses involved. Edward Munch was painting his patrons and his contemporaries and so on. But I think what is different, as I said before, is kind of the circulation aspect and an awareness of the circulation aspect. There's also something about encryption that I think is really important. Someone maybe after listening to this podcast will point out an instance where I'm wrong, but it's not like about saying this is a portrait of first name, last name, person. Like there is a kind of opacity. Uh, maybe it's kind of an urge to protect one scene. It feels a bit different, if you know what I mean. It's about showing, but also about like, I don't want to say gatekeeping because that has kind of like a negative connotation to it. There's a certain amount, a level of exclusivity kind of like baked into it, perhaps. Yeah, although I do think one of the things that characterizes the feeling of this is a certain kind of knowingness about that opacity. Kind of like the fashion model look where it's kind of distanced and removed because it suggests, you know, a certain layer of desirable distance between the viewer. So there's a kind of sentimental intimacy that's being offered up that's sort of keeping you at an arm's length. And then also I do think this is different than a famous painter like Alice Neal making intimate portraits of her neighbors in East Harlem in the 40s and 50s. It's maybe more similar to Andy Warhol's screen tests, making art out of showing who was on the scene in the factory, and that's about that scene. But then it's more personal feeling than that. I think part of the double coding of these paintings is the suggestion that you ought to know who these people are, that mm -hmm. I have cool friends. Yeah, I think I called it like clique-based realism or something right. in my piece. And actually, it's funny when I say that out loud, it sounds like clickbait realism. I like that too, though. I mean, I mean yeah, I mean, we should retitle it. <laughs> I also don't necessarily want to say that it's disingenuine. Like, I'm proud of them, but like, know them. And that's something different and not necessarily political in the way that like Alice Neal's work is in its overtones, right? Well, I think there might be a way that we could say that clique-based realism that you're talking about grows out of a kind of clickbait realism. Maybe we should talk about the last 10 years of figuration, because whether or not people perceive what you're talking about as a particularly new phenomenon, it seems like a mutation in something that's been happening for quite a while. In that sense, around 2012, there's been a huge boom in figurative painting, and this is a development within that. You talk about this a bit in the article, but go ahead and lay out what the conversation around figuration has been like for the last decade. Yeah, I will omit things because it's hard to talk about everything, of course, but like figuration, as you said, became really popular in 2012. I think it started to become really popular in 2014. That's when I feel like I really kind of like started to see it everywhere. And that was exactly when the woefully described as zombie formalism was like fading out. Yeah, and zombie formalism for people who don't know or too young to remember, <laughs> was a very hot market of abstract painters who worked in slightly gimmicky abstract styles. Mm -hmm, exactly. And as you said, it was this market bubble and it really kind of burst all of a sudden. And in that moment, I feel like suddenly the protagonist changed. It wasn't like tiny dots on paintings. It was people. People were back and everyone was excited about it. And and then it kind of like breaks off into two sort of domains, I guess. There was this very like like hyper-political painting that became really important and identity-based art became foregrounded in discourse. You had Hamishi Faro's response to Dana Schutz's painting, like Hamishi 
painted a picture of Dana Schutz's son to comment on her painting of Emmett Till's open casket. So, you know, there was these very intense discussions going on in the figurative painting sphere. Just to say, I really think of the moment of figuration of this kind becoming a truly mainstream phenomenon with Kehinde Wiley's presidential painting of Barack Obama. This kind of figuration that centered questions of identity and representation became a huge subject of conversation and then really centered the conversation art for quite some time. Yeah, because ultimately, like, who gets depicted and who doesn't has been a huge problem in Western art history. Mm -hmm. There was some very necessary kind of corrections to the canon that were being made around 2016, I guess, when that painting came out. So this was obviously like a very political space and totally urgent in a lot of ways. And then on the other hand, surrealism kind of came back. And this became part of the market churn in a huge way, as I think you would probably agree. And I think after a couple of years, Alex Greenberger from Art News dubbed it zombie figuration. So he kind of like took up Walter Robinson's zombie formalism and then basically nixed this one as like also something that had like totally stagnated. One work after the next became more trippier than the next. Everything just got really wild and otherworldly and sort of flatlined at some point. You talk about Avery Singer, who's a very closely watched painter, digitally inspired canvases. I think of Emily May Smith, who's a painter who does these whimsical canvases that follow the adventures of the broom from Fantasia, if that possibly brings an image to people's mind listening at home. And forms of figurative surrealism have been really present. And I think about the time that this new emphasis on sentimental relationships come together, I think both these trends are sort of facing a little bit of backlash or overexposure. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think that the surrealism thing had just flatlined. It became so absorbed by the art market that it became uninteresting to a lot of people who wanted to talk about art critically. And then also, I think with painting that was a sort of like identity-based figuration, you can probably explain it better than I, but there's been kind of a breakaway. I think this is a difficult thing to talk about, but I do think it's worth saying that there has been this reckoning with the question of who gets to paint and what kind of figures are represented in the museum that has really centered the conversation. But there has been a real sense that a cynical side to that has come to the surface, the sense that Blackness, for instance, is being consumed in an abstract way. The art historian Darby English he was interviewed by Sade Olangandudu for our website, and he made a very strong intervention about how uncomfortable he was in how trendy the black figure had become. He said, the proliferating figure is a clear market indicator. When there's a taste for black art or blackness as art, the figure, which generates satisfying, unthreatening presence effects and goes down easy, has a great effing time. So mm. I think that there's a certain backlash in the negative sense to this kind of painting. There's also a critical reassessment of it, or just a certain amount of suspicion that when something becomes that mainstream and that dominant, that there are people speculating on it. There are people who are not 
treating this subject matter with care but are consuming it as a form of content. And I think that's an important background to the conversation you're having because I think that there is this kind of fantastic neo-surrealism that definitely became a little bit overexposed. But even more than that, there's what you might call identity-based figuration. Mm -hmm. And I simply use that term because that's how the wall labels for this kind of art present it, as it's about identity and centering the identity of the figures in the painting, uses a lot of rhetoric of community. It's a big rhetoric of community around it. Yeah. And it's often very heavily important, the identity of the folks in the paintings, that they come from the community. And also it came up in the, in the age of Instagram as well. This all happened around 2014, 2015, and the very clear images of bodies on canvas circulated well in that environment. Yeah, because they have the same formalities as selfies and pictures, so it's a fluent space. It's hard to get a grip of an abstract painting when it's, you know, this like a tiny little thing on your phone. But, you know, you can see the parameters of a body a lot more clearly. I think you said that well about this kind of exhaustion and frustration that some people express feeling about the way that some identity-based figuration was being taken up by the sort of market logic and also just trend logic. People's communities are not trends, especially when we're talking about marginal communities that have been excluded in so many different ways, but also from our history. I mean, it is a disturbing thing. So I do think that like this point I made about like encryption as a way of like protecting your community while also depicting it is where this kind of like hyper sentimental sensibility comes into play in a really smart way. Yeah, you mentioned the painter Salman Tour, who's a Pakistani-American artist at a big show at the Whitney. It was centered around a painting called Four Friends. And I think that title is very important, you know. And it's an image of a house party and four people sitting on the couch looking at their phone and sort of romantically dancing that suggests that you're looking at a community. But the community is also held at a little bit of a distance from you now. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm showing you this, but I have a privileged access to it. And that is like totally very cool and understandable and that makes a lot of sense and maybe it's a way to like circumvent this strange trend logic and that's why I also wanted to describe this hypersentimental painting movement not as like a formal aesthetic but more of a sensibility and I think that in that way it won't maybe like become trendy in the same way because it can't. Well, let's get into that because some of the framing in your article suggests to me otherwise, Kate. One of the things I like about this type of essay is naming a thing, but then through that lens, you have the opportunity to look at the surrounding culture and what else is going on there. And I think there are a bunch of things happening in the wider culture that resonate with the kind of phenomenon you're talking about. Another term you have for this particular vibe in painting is, if you know, you know painting. Can you explain that term, where it comes from? I think this is really interesting. Yeah, there was an article called the If You Know, You Know Model by Lauren Cochran. Again, it's something that's been done for a while, but it's become prevalent again. And again, it's circulating on social media in a very new way of incorporating 
the right kind of people, maybe not the most famous kind of people, but the right kind of people into fashion lookbooks. So you can get Carly Kloss for your ad if you have a lot of money. That won't necessarily be a problem. But to get an art critic like Dean Kissick to maybe sit in your lookbook, I don't know, but that maybe requires a different sort of conversation in a way, or that your brand is a different kind of brand than the brand that could just pay top dollar and get anyone. And, you know, I think that part of the if you know, you know trend in fashion is because of social media. So, for example, the Balenciaga campaign, I think it was in spring, summer 2020, had this art collector, Karen Boros, who's based in Berlin. She walked in it. And of course, this showed up on my feeds because I'm based in Berlin. The Boroses are very prominent collectors, but I don't know that people who are at Paris Fashion Week necessarily like recognize who they are. So it was really like reaching over that crowd and like speaking to specific people who might also happen to be high net worth people that might want to buy Balenciaga clothes, you know? And it's also a celebration of a kind of cultural elite as well. It's a micro celebrities. And I think this kind of if you know, you know thing is kind of rising to prominence with the end of the age of the influencer. People are more interested in micro-influencers now. My friend who works in fashion said to me a couple years ago that the desirable influencer that you want to get for your cool brand is like under 10K followers. Over 10K, it's like, it's too much. And there's also this trend of like de-influencing where influencers talk about things that they don't like and that this is crappy to buy. So people are a bit tired of this shopping mall vibe of everything. And I think that a search for like, authentic, cool people and then trying to sort of like put a fence around them so that they can actually like exist for a minute is something that we're seeing in art as well. Yeah, in internet culture, there's a big discussion of the burnout with hyper visibility Mm -hmm. across a lot of different fields, you know, in political senses, around the consumption of identity, in just the everyday lived sense. There's been a couple generations now who've been raised completely in public and a turn towards more private forms of presentation and community that some of this is tapping into, even as it taps into, it kind of reanimates very old ideas of subcultural cool as being aspirational and that there's a VIP room that some people are in and other people aspire to be in. This hypervisibility point is really important, I think, too, because there's been this trend or at least people talk about it, leaving Twitter and they're going to Mastodon and people are going to Discord and everyone's kind of quitting the big three, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. But the thing is, is that people aren't. I think that what is happening is that people are going on to these smaller forums and having their productive conversations and then they're bringing them back when they're to the front stage, when they're ready. Even those of us who like to think that we're not hyper-visible are still unfortunately stuck in these town squares that we've grown very tired of. So this idea of this like hyperlinked way of like speaking to one another that's very codified is like kind of a way to continue to exist on these platforms without having everything that you do become usurped by marketing. You thought about this before. I think this whole marketing aspect with quantitative aesthetics, right? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's a general feeling that the mythification of everything, that everything is targeted at the median consumer and therefore feels like it can't possibly help you define a sense of identity, a place in the world to be attached to it. And a, a hunger and a hunt for some kind of club that gives you a meaningful community. I read your article and I think about 
the members-only clubification of New York. You know, I don't know how many members-only clubs are being built right now, but it's a lot. I mean, <laughs> it's probably too many. Oh, wow. uh, there aren't enough people to be part of all those clubs. But it is definitely like a commodity people are selling, and um, it probably taps into a real sense of how cool is uh, migrating, that you maybe don't want to be where everybody is seen. You want to be where the right people are seen. Yeah, I think also another aspect that's driving this behavior is a general feeling of disenchantment with politics right now, mass narratives. Like I think I mentioned it in my piece, the sort of algorithmic drift into social clusters where like people you might know from high school that you might have lived in the same town for 20 years are reading completely different news feeds than you. So far from your reality that when you come back together, it's like you're living in different planets. And this kind of confusion that that has like brought about that I think a lot of us are feeling where we have no like grand narrative, so to speak, anymore has maybe a natural kind of reaction to that is to just paint what you know and speak about what you know and what is simple and what is something that you have agency over, which is your community. I just want to say that I think some of your examples organically really illustrate this. Like I really think of Amalia Ullman as an artist who became famous as maybe the first Instagram influencer artist or someone playing with that form. Her famous work, for people who don't know, was Excellences and Perfections, where she performed as a young woman moving to the city and suddenly being slowly corrupted by the quest for fame. And this was a performance that was staged over some time on Instagram and sort of captured that moment of the influencer in 2014 and after where new forms of celebrity and micro-celebrity were being formed on Instagram and commodified. And so to me, people's identities were being rewarded and then chewed up by the algorithm and the marketers and the click-hungry audience, like consuming other people's lives as content. And so to me, it's very symbolic, this like movement from that form of art to the Jenny's show, which is now about the actual community that mm -hmm. she's a part of. It's not a fantastic performance for Instagram. It's here are these caricatures, these portraits of the people I hang out with, that I actually hang out with in New York. And with that, there's a sort of embrace of a lack of propriety or professionalism, you know, like there's this urge to also like get rid of some of the like slickness and propriety to everything right now. Because even we've absorbed this kind of marketing logic so much ourselves, you know, that we feel the need to put forward like clean edges to everything that we present. And I mean, this is again, part of this sort of like de-influencing thing where like people just are posting not nice pictures of themselves anymore. Like the filter is out. It's not cool, you know? Genuineness is a new kind of thing that is being sought after. You mentioned the disenchantment with politics. There is definitely a sort of jaded vibe in the air, which is alarming given the general disintegrating state of politics. The political scientist Anton Jaeger has this term, hyperpolitics, which he coined for exactly this sense that the way that the politicization of the micro alongside the macro in the Trump era 
changed the way people related to the politics. So like everything was political, you know, who you voted for is political, but also what TV show you consumed was political. And there was a sort of a constant referendum on that that diffused people's political attention and energy and ultimately has burned out a lot of people's political aspirations because when everything's political, nothing's political. So I just say that because when I read hyper-sentimentalism, I immediately think of hyper-politics. And I think that this kind of exaggerated focus on the sentimental aspects and the more unpolished aspects of people's intimate relationships that are kind of exposed but also guarded in the way that you talk about. I really see the hyperpolitics as mm-hmm. the background of that. For sure. And like between Trump and Brexit, everyone was just arguing and fighting for years about this. And then the pandemic slammed everybody. So there's like a certain kind of fatigue. And, you know, as I was saying, like finding a kind of agency in your discourse like feels important when it just feels like no matter what you do, it's it's like almost irrelevant. I think a lot of people are just disenchanted. And so this idea of the hyper-sentimental can be seen through that prism as a, like a rebuttal of the hyper-political, as you say. But I don't want to say that it's not political because I actually think, you know, in the case of like artists like Salman Tour and Donner Lamberg, this other painter, you know, they painted each other. I mean, these are also political statements in and of themselves, like when you're painting your community and immortalizing them on canvas. I think it might be worth throwing in here, since you mentioned the pandemic, the great vibe shift discourse of 2022-23, that the art crowd sort of transfixed by this idea uh, that a vibe shift is coming, as in we've been through this hyper-political era and people are ready for the next thing, whether that's an attempt to find a way through what feels like a very intractable age where politics became deflected into very silly and trivial interpersonal matters and trying to find a way to the macro-political again, to be a positive take on it, or a reactionary turn towards like Weimar-style hedonism as the world falls apart. That's the negative term, turn out, or even worse, the turn towards some sort of new synthesis of reactionary politics and cool kid aesthetics. It's a very cool reaction to be like, I'm just painting my friends. We're just having fun. This is part of that shift of just like, does it have to always be about something or can it just be about that? And that in of itself is like a very kind of edgy position right now, right? For a lot of folks who aren't part of any scene, this came on their radar with an article by Ben Smith in the New York Times, their media correspondent. And this is one of those classic the Times is on it kind of things, you know, <laughs> what are the young people up to called They Had a Fun Pandemic, You Can Read All About It in Print, sort of looking at the new downtown scene in New York that had sort of sprung up during the pandemic when no one was looking, that was specifically oriented around kind of getting offline and partying on rooftops and about the kind of romance of that kind of artistic life, specifically pitched against the kind of mainstream political online discourse. But people were looking, right? Like, I mean, I'm not in New York and I was watching that from afar. So I think that that is exactly how this is like functioning well in a way. And through this prism is like the right people are able to kind of see it and follow the niche Twitter accounts and listen to the niche podcasts that are kind of talking about this stuff without it being kind of blown out right away, which I guess in the end, ultimately everything will be. And that's part of the chase of culture, right? And this chimes with a lot of the trend casting about the vibe shift that a lot of this sentiment that you're talking about, to me, feels of a piece with 2000 Chic. 
you know, Naughty Adi's Chic, the Indie Sleaze revival, and so on. The meet me in the bathroom kind of moment of reconsidering that era of the late 2000s. So this kind of sceniness to me feels like a throwback to the art world that I emerged into at this time where Dash Snow throwing a party at Deitch Projects and that making that the substance of his art. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like dancing at the end of the world. It's got this specific attitude, and I definitely think it's sort of present again, and it follows whatever the, like, 20-year rule of trendiness, so it makes sense. And yeah, like, as I was saying earlier, I think a certain lack of propriety, a messiness, a, like, showing up drunk to your podcast interview or something like that like that's the vibe nobody's really going to try to pretend that things are more important than they need to be or whatever and then you know as journalists it's like the past couple years we've been inundated with pitches of this artist is speaking about the most important thing you need to know and everything had a certain kind of heaviness to it and there is a certain lightness that emerges through this kind of sensibility right Well, there's that on the one side, and then I think on the other side, there's like the immersive Van Gogh phenomenon, which is kind of the other thing that the internet has done to art, you know? It's either all referendum on how good a person you are, like what art you're consuming, or it's like completely drained of anything but its identity as a selfie opportunity. And the reason why I think 2000s nostalgia feels resonant to people is that's kind of the last moment before this social media wave, right? I mean, the late 2000s was like the last moment within people's available memory when art was Mm. defined more by the kind of old school of in-person relationships and less by your branding online or how things circulated via social networks. The center of the discussion has really migrated in New York for the museums. Like, to me, it's like no one's talking about what's going on in the museums. That feels like an inert part of the conversation. Like, it feels Mm. really disconnected from what's happening in the little galleries. And that seems to me what people are interested in right now. Is it similar in Berlin? Do you feel some of that? Yeah, for sure. And I think that that comes back to this kind of revival of the indie sleeves or the indie sensibility, you know, like the DIY kind of sensibility seems like it's really prevalent right now. And I think that museums can't keep up with the pace of those conversations because they're planning things like a year in advance. So decisions to invite comedians to talk about modernist painters eight months ago maybe doesn't land eight months later, for example. This kind of thing, like the pace of discussion online is moving really quickly. And so I think that smaller galleries, smaller publications, Discord channels, like they're just more primed to be able to respond meaningfully than some of these bigger titans of different institutions that we have. So I think there's definitely a bit of that in Berlin. I think that people have always been trying to find their scene and trying to find their tribes. I mean, it's a very kind of human urge. I just feel like right now, as I said earlier, there's a sense of confusion. It's like musical chairs. Like the song is on and everyone's running around trying to figure out like where they're going to sit down before it like locks in or something. So you've come back to this idea of authenticity a lot. And I I don't know if it's a disagreement between us or (laughs) just that this is an inherently ambiguous phenomenon and Mm. authenticity is a porous concept in any case because everybody defines their authentic self based on images that come to them that are packaged and sculpted in various kinds of ways. So how 
authentic do you think this is as a trend or as a motif? There is a really sincere side of it, almost a way that relationships are foregrounded as I think you suggested, mm-hmm. in a kind of defensive way. Like, these are my friends. Uh, tell me otherwise. You can't tell me this is an important subject matter. This is important to me. Yeah, yeah. There's like a kind of irrefutability to it because it's not like a hypothesis that can be disproved or something. And in that sense, that's where I guess I just kind of don't cast the vote. I don't know what the nature of some of these relationships are. They certainly are well-positioned, and I'm seeing that, but whether they're actually friends and they're calling each other on a bad day or whether it's maybe more about the fact that they know each other and that they're proud to know each other, like, you can't make those calls. And the idea of, like, marketing yourself, we all do that. Like, you put on certain clothes when you go out, you say certain things and you don't say other things. We're constantly, like, promoting a certain idea of ourselves. And also... The idea of a network, I feel like, gets a bad rap. Like, a network isn't necessarily, like, a negative thing. There's meaningful networks, and there's meaningless networks. And it's very hard to know what the constitution of people's networks are. So I think it's a safer position to just assume that people are being genuine. And if they're getting, you know, the secondary benefit of also showing you how cool they are, well, then, fine, I'll take it. Yeah, you can be disingenuously genuine and genuinely disingenuous, and everything in between. Authentically inauthentic. Perfectly imperfect. All of it. Well, Kate Brown, thank you for helping us decode the art of our time, and it's been a really great pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, it's been fun. Thank you, Ben. That's it for this week's show. If you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to The Art Angle on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us It's a little thing, but it does help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening. See you next week.